Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Phil S. Dixon. Phil is a baseball historian and researcher who specializes in the Negro Leagues and black baseball in general. He's the author of several books, including Wilbur Bullet Rogan and the Kansas City Monarchs. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Negro League Man. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Well, I'm just delighted always to talk a little baseball heading into the All-Star break. I'm excited. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top, Phil. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, actually, you know, I started off as a youngster uh, collecting baseball cards is what what did it. And uh, so, you know, I, I uh, really followed baseball. I knew about the major leagues. I was a little kid that they said, hey, this kid's a walking encyclopedia. And that started it all. And, and uh, that was in the uh, early 60s, uh, mid-early 60s. And then um, probably uh, after all those years of doing research and just loving the game and following the history, and and I ran into a guy who played for the Kansas City Monarchs. That was in 1980, and his name was Carol Ray Moffley. He played for the Monarchs starting 1920 to 1934. He was there for all the world championship teams and a great player himself. And that occurred in Topeka, Kansas. And he piqued my interest because he began to talk about baseball, of which I knew nothing about. And I called myself a student of baseball, and, uh, and I always loved the game. I played it. And so... Um, you know, it just attracted me, and and so I started out doing a little uh, book in his honor, and uh, so here we are, forty years later, and uh, I'm I'm still honoring him. Well, I mean, of course, I have to ask you: Do you still have all those cards from the '60s? I mean, we're talking about uh, Clementes <laughs> and uh, maybe a Carl Yastrzemski rookie in there. Do you still have those cards? I've sold a lot of cards over the years. Uh, I still have quite a few. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I was talking to a gentleman yesterday. I was telling him about and. Uh, 1978, I sold my 55 tops. I had picked it and put together 55 tops. Believe it or not, I sold it for $400. And at that particular time, uh, a Hank Aaron rookie was going for 25 So you thought you had a good deal. But, man, would I like to have that set back. It was excellent mint. But, but I don't know if I ever get it back. But, you know, those that happens in hobbies, and you just never know what's going to be valuable. And, and But I've, you know, been uh, – you know, I've had the honor of having my hands on some pretty valuable cards and autographs. I've, I've sold autographs for over $10,000 in, in my lifetime. So I collected baseball cards and autographs. And, uh, you know, so I did pretty good by it. And, and the thing is, uh, it helps me now because I'll go places. It doesn't make a difference if it's a Negro leaguer, a former major leaguer who played at the turn of the century. They'll try to sneak a ball player by me. But you can't do that because I'm really a student of baseball. Well, let's talk about the Negro Leagues for a little bit. It's uh, it's your primary area of research and, and specialty, and it's such a great history of baseball. I mean, it's not great that, that the leagues were segregated from each other, but there was a lot of great baseball being played. When did uh, what people know as the Negro Leagues form, and how many original teams were there? Well, the original uh, Negro League itself is a league. The first and lasting league was the one organized in 1920. In Kansas City, where Ruth Foster became the president, they had eight teams. You know, they had a couple in Chicago and Detroit. Dayton had a team. They had a Cuban team that was strictly a road club. And so that was the one that I think most people uh, refer to when they talk about the organizing of the Negro. Uh, and it was called the Negro National League at that time. Uh, later in 1923, it was joined by the Eastern Colored League, uh, which had teams in the East. So in uh, 1924, they played the first, what they called Colored World Series. And uh, so, um, yes, I would say 1920, but there were leagues before that that just didn't last. Lots of efforts. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, obviously we'll hit upon Jackie Robinson in a little bit, but before Jackie, in the 1800s, there were African-American players playing professional baseball, and then there was a gentleman's agreement to sort of keep them out, and that wasn't, you know, baseball was, there were many different leagues in baseball, and that was sort of in all of these leagues. So where did black players turn to play ball if they wanted to play before the Negro Leagues formed? Well, you know, uh, one thing I might preface uh, not only were they playing in the white professional leagues, they were playing in with black professional teams. So you have teams like uh, 
the the, the uh, Cuban Giants, um, they're organized around 1885. And so they were considered the first professional team. That's kind of been debated. I know I found a team in St. Louis that was organized before them that had turned professional. So uh, going to the 1880s, they had a whole circuit of black teams. And a lot of these teams traveled, barnstorming. And that's how they made their money. Rarely could they sit in one city and just play games. So they were on the road just like the major league teams, but they were working a lot harder for their money because they may have 40, 60, 70 opponents in a year, whereas a major league team, you know, they're going to play the same guys over and over again. And some major league players barnstormed during the offseason as well. Barnstorming was in, in some ways how some white players played against some black players of their time. But I'm curious as, as to how were they barnstorming opponents chosen? Would they go into a city? Who were they playing against when they were barnstorming? Well, you know, you're talking about the golden age of town baseball. So every town has a team all over, all across America, where there was enough people, baseball was truly our national pastime. So there was no shortage of teams. And these weren't like teenage guys. These were grown men who had turned their cities and built parks and turned it into a paying proposition. And the best talent out there, they were going to bring in these um, African-American teams, and it was going to be the biggest draw of the year. They're going to see some of the greatest players. They knew these players could have played in the major leagues. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a great attraction. It's, it's, um, and so there, there was like a circuit, a circuit. And um, so it was, and it was played out that way all over America. You know, in the East, towns are a lot closer together. But out in the West here, you know, if you get past, you know, Kansas City, and actually the major leagues didn't come past St. Louis at that time. But, you know, there, there was a lot of baseball being played in Texas that had nothing to do with the major leagues in Oklahoma and, as a matter of fact, in 1910, the state champions of Utah were the Occidentals, an all-black team. Playing against white competition? That's exactly right. And, and the only place that black teams primarily wouldn't play against uh, a white competition would be in the, in the Deep South. They had a lot of uh, laws that restricted uh, you know, uh, interracial play. matter of fact, some places like Birmingham... You know, you couldn't play dominoes against a white guy. It'd be against the law. When the National League instituted their gentlemen's agreement to keep black players and players of color, any color, out, was there any resistance? Did any of the white owners who were sort of agreeing to this resist at all, or was it just sort of a unanimous thing that they did? Oh, it was pretty unanimous. You know, it was pretty unanimous, uh... And uh, most of the white owners uh, that would be involved, they would actually go out and organize African-American teams and, and, and become owners of those teams. So some of the African-American teams weren't owned by African-Americans. They were owned by, you know, uh, Caucasians and, and uh, a lot of Jewish owners. Uh, and uh, so it, it was a universal agreement that went from the major leagues right through the minor leagues that they weren't going to hire any black players, no matter how good you were. Right now, this season, we were seeing um, Shohei Otani at the beginning of the year. He was being compared, you know, the Japanese Babe Ruth, and he was being compared to Ruth because he could hit and he could pitch. But so many stars of the Negro Leagues did both of those things as well. There wasn't just Otani to Ruth. There were players in between who did that. Can you tell me why that style of play, why so many players did both, and who some of those players were in the Negro Leagues? Well, you know, I've, I've written a book about a ball player by the name of Wilbur Bullet Rogan, who I happen to think is the greatest all-around baseball player that ever lived. And when they compare, you know, somebody to Ruth because he can pitch and hit – I think that they need to read a little bit more about baseball history. And they can start off by reading my book about Wilbur Bullet Rogan. And I happen to think he was the greatest all-around baseball player of all time. And I'll tell, you re I'll tell you the reason why. As a starting pitcher, he won over 400 games, been documented. As, as a uh, strikeout pitcher, struck out over 3,000 men. Ruth never did either one of those as a pitcher. Also, uh, he invented a pitch called the palm ball that he used to just change the pace and people still palming the ball today. Uh, in addition to that, 
he uh, when he wasn't pitching, he played the outfield. And I've been able to uh, validate about 400 home runs that he hit right in that area. And many times he hit a home run, pitch a shutout, practically win his own, his own ball game. And here's something else. He was a 10-second man, could run the 100-yard dash in less than 10 seconds. Now, we know Ruth couldn't do that, right? And, you know, and not only Rogan, uh, he doesn't have a book. But, you know, he's in about three or four different Hall of Fames around the world, and that's Martin Diego, the Cuban. He was awfully good as well at pitching and hitting. So uh, there were a number of players who could do it. Cristobal Torrenti uh, pitched and uh, also was a, a great hitter. So, um, you know, there was, there was any number. But the, in the Negro League, they had smaller rosters. So if a guy was a pitcher, you know, he might just be playing the outfield the next day. And uh, he was pretty good. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you another one, uh, Ray Brown. Ray, uh, Ray Brown, who was in the Hall of Fame, got in there in 2006 from the Homestead Grays, another good hitter. And if you remember uh, when Jackie Robinson was signed and he was playing in Montreal, um, there was another pitcher that sent up with him at Montreal. His name was Roy Partlow, also another great hitter. Never made it to the bigs, but Partlow was a great pitcher and a great hitter. And when he got to the big leagues, he was just a pitcher. You mentioned Rogan. You did write a whole book on Rogan. People should check that out. I want to ask you about Rogan because Rogan was the star player on one of my favorite teams to read about, something I'm fascinated by, which is the 25th Infantry Wreckers. Can you tell me about them a little bit? Well, sure, sure. You know, now, one thing about Rogan, I have to tell you, uh, I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, and that's where Rogan grew up. He was born in Oklahoma, and his, and his, his mom died, and then so his father uh, relocated to Kansas City. As a matter of fact, that uh, he married, he remarried a lady named. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of her name right now, uh, but her one of her relatives just died here, maybe about a year ago. I was at that funeral, but uh, Austin. And so anyway, uh, Rogan, uh, in I guess probably about 1911, he moves his age up and joins the military. You know, there were only four black units in the whole armed forces. So an African-American is going to be in one of those four. And he instantly was sent out to the Philippines. And he's the greatest pitcher in Hawaii and the Philippines. And, uh, and there's lots of articles talking about how great he was. And this is around 1911 through 19, maybe uh, 19, 1911 to 1919. And he doesn't come to the Negro League until about eight years later. So, you know, so he's in the military for quite a while, and then he comes to the Negro Leagues in 1920, and uh, he remains there till 1938. So he left. He left an old man, but he left his mark on baseball. And uh, you can't talk about the Negro Leagues without talking about Rogan and and think you know what you're talking about. But that was a great great military thing. How aware were were the professional white players of the day playing in Major League Baseball of the superstars playing in the Negro Leagues? Well, you know, uh, interesting thing, my next book, as a matter of fact, I'm signing the contract for it now, is about Dizzy Dean. And um, Dizzy Dean knew, knew full well, you know, after the 1934 World Series, when uh, the uh, St. Louis beat the Detroit Tigers and the Dean boys won all four of the World Series games, instead of going home and cashing in their, their big checks, they decided to come and barnstorm against four African-American teams. They did the Kansas City Monarchs for six games. Then they had uh, the Philadelphia Stars, and then they had the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and also the New York Black Yankees. And those black players taught Dean a few things about baseball, and uh, uh, they hit him as good as the Detroit Tigers wish they could hit him. But once again, this is an era where, you know, they had no chance to get in the major leagues. And then a lot of the reporters who were covering the games basically uh, took their achievements and nullified them to make it look like they didn't do much against the deans, but they did. And that's, that's, that's what I'm going to write about in that book. And it's, actually, it's already finished, so hopefully it'll be out next spring. Well, that sounds great. And uh, how were the style of play different? Did they play a very different style of game in the Negro Leagues? Yeah, well, they ran a lot more. You know, uh, and uh, but they had a complete game, a complete a complete team. So you know, if you take someone like the Homestead Grays, uh, 1931, I happen to think the Homestead Grays were better than the 27 Yankees. Now I'm saying the Homestead Grays of 1931 were 
better than the 27 Yankees. And as a matter of fact, I wrote a book about that <laughs> so, so people can read. And I don't want people to take my word for it. I put my stuff out there so people can read and come to your own conclusion. But I always make a pretty good argument because these players are outstanding. If you just follow the history and write the history like it happened, you you know, their merits stand on their own. So um, uh, there were a lot of really good teams, and, and you know, they had balance. As a matter of fact, if you take the 31 Homestead Grays, you had four guys who hit over 20 home runs. You had four guys who had over 50 doubles. You had six guys with over 200 hits. I mean, you know, and you had four, you had four 20-game winners. So, you know, uh, when I was growing up and they talked about the Orioles having four 20-game winners, well, heck, you can pick up my book on the 31 Homestead Grays and see that happen a long time ago. And how about this one? They scored 1,600 runs. I think the uh, first uh, major league team to score 1,000 runs were the Yankees in the 1930s. So when players were barnstorming, they were playing in all kinds of fields, fields of different kinds and against competition of different levels. But when they were playing sanctioned Negro League games, what type of parks were they playing in and what kind of crowds were they drawing? There were some Negro League teams who had their own parks, like Memphis had their own park. Uh, But most of the time they were playing in minor league stadiums and major league stadiums. And uh, so, and, and even in smaller towns, a lot of these towns had really nice parks. And a uh, matter of fact, uh, I've been on tour here for the last, since 2014, going back to a lot of places where the Kansas City Monarchs played. And a lot of these parks are still there, and people are still playing in these parks, uh, which is amazing. But, you know, no, you know I, I try to talk about it in my social media and show pictures, but there's a wonderful history out there. So when you think about them playing in cow pastures or something like that, they're actually playing a lot of time in, uh, in some pretty good parks. And a lot of these town teams, a lot of your, big, your, your major leaguers, they all played against Negro League ball players when they were coming along, either on their town team, maybe in the minor leagues. I doubt if there's any guy who, who probably hadn't played against a Negro League player uh, or African American player during his lifetime. I doubt if there was any ball players that hadn't hadn't experienced that. I think it's really cool when teams have like a lineage of great positions. Like the Red Sox went from Ted Williams to Karius Tremsky to Jim Rice, which is pretty amazing to get three Hall of Famers back to back to back. And then you know, 15 years later, they got Manny Ramirez, who certainly had a Hall of Fame caliber career. And the Negro Leagues had a really cool lineage of catchers, going from Louis Santop to Biz Mackey, to Josh Gibson, to Roy Campanella. Why was there such a strong position at catcher in the Negro Leagues? Well, catcher catcher is an important position. And, uh, you know, I think they took a lot of pride in that. And, and see, one thing about it, uh, some of the guys you mentioned there are kind of heavier guys. You know, one of, one of my favorite one, he's probably, he is probably a uh, lightweight, which would be Bill Pentway. He was probably a better thrower than all of those guys put together. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, they didn't have a prototype guy who played catcher. So, you know, um, and if you take a guy like Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe, you know, he's going to pitch and catch. So there was, there was, uh, there was uh, several guys who did that as well. So, but I think they took pride in their game, and uh, they truly played for the love of the game, and they, they entertained fans all across this nation. And, um, you know, I'm just happy – to know that they won't be forgotten, and I'm doing my part to make that possible. Tell me about the East-West All-Star Game and some of the great things that happened there. Yeah, that was the brainchild of Gus Greenlee, uh, somebody I think should be in the Hall of Fame. Gus Greenlee, uh, he believed that black teams ought to be playing at the highest level, and they ought to be using Major League Stadiums. So coming through in the 1930s, he was the one who put the four-team doubleheaders together for Yankee Stadium and and, uh, you know, in Griffith Field in uh, Washington, D.C., and, and Ebbets Field in, in uh, Brooklyn, he was the one who was behind that. And uh, probably his uh, greatest thing was putting together the East-West game, which he took to Comiskey Park in, to, in Chicago. And it, beca- it became the event uh, for Negro League Baseball. He started out kind of humble the, the first years, basically, 
almost the Chicago American Giants and his team, and his team, which was the Crawfords. <laughs> but he, he was able to keep pushing it forward. And uh, at its peak, it uh, was drawing something like 50,000 people. And, and I know uh, African-American fans would come from all over the country just for that one game to see all these great players who uh, were often – playing in places that they couldn't see them. So uh, it, it was the uh, one of the biggest attractions in the history of the Negro League Baseball Leagues. I want to ask you about some of the stars of the Negro Leagues and even stars of black baseball and barnstorming baseball before the league was officially formed. Uh, let's do that. Let's, let's start with John Donaldson. He's a guy that has been credited with 400 wins and I think 4,000 strikeouts, but never officially played in the Negro Leagues. I don't believe he was playing in the early 1900s. He pitched for a very long time. He was very good. Tell me a bit about him. There's a movement now to try and get him in the Hall of Fame. Do you think he belongs? In, 19, in 2006, when they had the Hall of Fame inductions uh, and they put 17 Negro Leaguers in, I gave to the Hall of Fame at that time a list of 4,500 strikeouts. Now, they have the John Donaldson Network today that has 5,000. They've only added 500 more. So he didn't get into the Hall of Fame in 2006. He should have been there. And, uh, you know, it's just unforgivable, in my opinion, that he didn't get in the Hall of Fame. And so, you know, there's not a new movement. There's an old movement that is probably getting a lot of new publicity. So, yeah, I actually turned in to the Hall of Fame committee 4,500 strikeouts verified with dates and locations. Were you a part of that committee in 2006? No, I was not. And, and uh, they, you know, well, it's an interesting story how that committee was formed. But uh, actually, I wasn't a part of the committee. And um, John Hallway, who was uh, very, very uh, prolific, and neither was Jim Riley. And uh, it's, it's a long story to how that happened. But uh, at, at the end, when they didn't elect Buck O'Neill and John Donaldson, I was kind of glad I wasn't there because I didn't want to be associated with that. But I did make an effort, and John Donaldson was my man. And so I put together a group along with uh, this guy named uh, Dave Kemp and a guy named Malinsky and then Pete Gordon, who's still working with John Donaldson. But the movement was already started at the 2006. So a lot of people don't know some of the things that go on. So I'm, hopefully I'm educating somebody on that. Uh, but John Donaldson did. Actually, I don't know if you knew this. Uh, uh, when they were organizing the uh, Negro National League, uh, John Donaldson, who had played for the All Nations, who were owned by J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs. He was co-owner with Tom Baird. Uh, they were trying to come up with a name for the new team, and John Donaldson was the one who uh, gave them and suggested Kansas City Monarchs. That's a really cool story right there. Yeah, and he did play for them. He played for them uh, through 1922. And then he went back and uh, went up to Bertha, Minnesota, and, and then he, because he was making more money doing that. And uh, actually, I think uh, one of the reasons they didn't put him in in 2006 is because they said a lot of his strikeouts were made outside the league. But you know, just face it, the man had to make a living. So he went to where his living took him, right? And what's interesting is they made that argument, but they didn't make the same argument for Satrapetic. How about that? Was he known by the baseball public at that time, given how much of his game was being played in barnstorming areas? When he came to town, was this like a celebrity was coming to town? Oh, sure. John Donaldson was called Donaldson the Great. At one time, he was dubbed as the greatest pitcher in black baseball, or, you know, the greatest colored pitcher in the world. He was known. John Donaldson is not a secret. And uh, I know, you know, I, you know, uh, you know, I always see this, you know, because people, you know, have different angles for how they want to sell their products. So, you know, that's about the greatest player you never heard of. Well, you know, anybody who's been doing anything related to the Negro Leagues, if you read any of the books, even going back to Only the Ball is White in 1967, John Donaldson's in there. So, you know, if the, the people who don't know is just because they haven't read the books. And so, but the information has been out there. And uh, I think I released my first book in 1992. Uh, I released two that year. He's in both of them. So, you know, um, you know, he's been there all the time. But is he Hall of Famer? Absolutely. 
Well, that's good to hear, and I do hope the Hall of Fame is going to revisit. At first, they were saying after 2006 that uh, they'd close the book on all Negro League candidates, and that what a mistake that was to say that. But now they're going to reopen it every 10 years. They're going to consider pre-integration players, and uh, Negro League players will be among the players they consider with Major League players from that time as well. So he does have a chance now, and that's great. Yeah, and and here's the thing. You know what? That was the plan. I really believe the plan was to have an induction of Negro League players and to close the book. That would be the end of it. They said we got everybody that was worth anybody, which was not true. But that was going to be it to close the book. Had it not been for Buck O'Neill not getting in the Hall of Fame, they might have closed the book. Buck O'Neill is the one that created all the firestorm that people started to look at the process and say, what's going on here? Buck should have been in the Hall of Fame. Had it not been for Buck, that door would have been closed. And uh, it would have been a closed chapter, sadly, for the major leagues and, major, and the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. But Buck O'Neill made it, made it happen. And believe me, Buck O'Neill made it happen. Well, it's interesting. When they had this special election in 2006, many people felt they were having the election to get Buck O'Neill in, and then Buck O'Neill didn't get in. So why didn't Buck O'Neill get in in 2006? You had the wrong people on the committee. I, was, uh, I did color commentary for a cable network that day, and I could see the people at the, uh, I think they were down in Florida, the people who were going to vote. I could see that on one screen. I could see Buck O'Neill at the Negro Leagues Museum on another screen, and I was getting ready to go on air. And so I could see the whole process, uh, and was off was not on the committee as well, but I could see the process. And uh, when Buck O'Neill didn't get in, they asked me why, and I told them the same answer then, and I'll tell people the same answer all these years later. We'll be, we'll be talking about, let's see, six, that's ten, uh, we're talking about 12 years later. My answer has not changed. <laughs> Wrong people on the committee. Wrong people on the committee. And you talked about how there was some politics with how that committee was formed. Can you get into a little more detail with that? Oh, sure I can. Um, the, uh, I'll go back. The, the Hall of Fame, uh, through some organization, basically they raised about $250,000 or something, some kind of total like that, to do statistics for the Negro Leagues. And so they had organizations put together their group, and they were going to see who could get this contract. So Jim Riley put together a group, and I was part of Jim Riley's. And then John Hawley put together a group, and he had me on his group. But those two guys did not win. And so it went to this other group, right? So that group managed, and they went through the money and did the statistics, which I can say you know, I can say something about those, how good they are. But they did, you know, go through the process. So then when they decided to put a Hall of Fame committee together, what they did was instead of opening up again, they just took that committee that they had given the money to and made them the committee. With no other additions or no changes, that was the committee, those people who did the research for them? Th that is correct. And so, and, and there, therein lies one of the first problems because uh, they tried to, after they did their statistics, they tried to put people in based on the statistics alone. And, I, and here's the problem with that. You know, uh, if, if you go on statistics alone, would Dizzy Dean be in the Hall of Fame? What do you think? 128 wins? Probably not. So you have to take a greater look at, at, at what you're doing, Right. And so when Buck O'Neill when Buck O'Neill comes to the table, if you're only looking at his batting average, you know he's going to end up, you know, looking pretty much like Dizzy Dean or like Tinkers and Evers and Chance, you know, Evers and Chance. So uh, he's not going to have those big big numbers, even though the numbers they had were not good. So uh, they went straight by the numbers, and they felt like Buck O'Neill wasn't a Hall of Famer. And so that disappointed a lot of people, but um, they kind of relied on the statistics. But part of that was the Hall of Fame's fault because those are the very people that they put on the committee. Did they make any mistakes in terms of people they put in? You know, there were people in the Hall of Fame, especially from the 20s and the 30s. High Pockets Kelly uh, is a guy with a great nickname who wasn't a great player. He's in the Hall of Fame. Did they make any mistakes in terms of people going in? First of all, uh, Effa Manley would have never got in 
if I had been there over Frank Leland or, you know, how do you get Ethan Manley over Frank Leland? My goodness. Or, or even Gus Greenlee, who, who, you know, we just talked about the East-West game and, you know, his, his powerful teams changed the course of uh, black baseball history. But uh, Ethan Manley gets in, no mention of her husband, but, uh, you know, and she becomes the first lady in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, uh, you know, probably people might not like the fact that I, you know, don't think that's a good choice, but I can back it up. Uh, Frank Leland was a much better choice right off the bat, you know, and uh, he was with the Leland Giants uh, and, um, and, and teams through the 1800s all the way to 1911. So, and, and so anyway, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought that was probably the worst choice. And then the other thing is, if you look at the committee, uh, if you follow the committee since that time, s- several of the guys that they elected, those same people end up writing books about them. So I almost feel like they had books about those people and that they were, they were kind of slanted right there. Or either another one is they were picking ball players from their area, which is another one. You know, so, uh, but I think, you know, I can't say that, Besides Ethel Manley, I won't say anybody else not deserving. I will say that over the years, uh, the order in which they put people in has has been not consistent. So there's there's people who should have went in before, and then they go in after somebody else. So, for instance, uh, Ruth Foster wasn't put into 1980, I believe. Ruth Foster should should have been been in quicker than Satchel Page. But, you know, once again, limited knowledge, and, uh, and sometimes the Hall of Fame is a popularity contest. Well, let's talk about Paige for a little bit. Paige was the most popular player in the Negro Leagues. He was a national sensation when he was pitching. Uh, there's always been some controversy about how old Paige was when he actually made his Major League debut. How old was Paige when he finally played for Cleveland, Cleveland Browns? 42. He was 42, 42 when he made old. his debut. And how old did they think he was at the time? Well, they didn't like to say because that was part of his uh, his uh, publicity. It was kind of like you know <laughs> they didn't like give an age as much as possible because that way they said you know hey this guy's old you know how old is he and it, be, and it became something that he used as promotion. So he said the uh, a, a gold age of family Bible. He didn't know when he was born and things like that and put right along with it. And uh, and to this day, people are still talking about it so it actually worked was page always a showman was he as a showman when he was playing was he a showman uh, off the field was he uh did he get where he was in the game and knew and embraced the star factor there you know when, when i think of uh black athletes through time and you know i'm going to think about probably who's the most photographed and and i'm you know, and the first thing i'm going to think about is joe lewis or jack johnson and satchel page is going to be right up there uh, Satchel Page, uh, truly a legend. He was truly a legend, and he was everything that he they said he was. And so th- this guy was a great pitcher, and you know they said he was a great pitcher, and he was a great pitcher, and he was a great personality as well. So people people uh, really uh, like to come and see this guy play. And you know, uh, interesting thing, you know, he he breaks in in 1926. I uh, interviewed the guy. Some some years ago, who was the actual guy who brought him from uh, from um, Mobile to the Chattanooga Black Lookouts? I, I interviewed that guy uh, before he died, and um, he said Page was good then when he brought him up. But you know he was just a thrower at that particular time, so he got better. But he could always throw hard, and uh, and you know the interesting thing is, you know I was just talking to someone, and I'm going to. Where am I going? I'm going to a town in, in Kansas called Oswego, Kansas. And uh, we were just talking the other day about Satchel Page pitching a game there in 1965. So, uh, 1965? So, so, 65. So, if you're talking about from 1927 to 1965, that, if that doesn't make him a legend, I don't know what else will be a longevity. Well, in 65 is interesting, too, because that's the year he also pitched for the Kansas City Athletics briefly. Uh, that's right. He did appear at the age of 58 in the major league, so that he was still playing that year is uh, rather impressive. But his last year in the majors was 1953. Then he came back late, obviously, in 1965. Was he still playing ball in between? 
never quit. Never quit. I was in Canada. I was in Canada in 2015. And I bet you I ran into 40 people that had played against Satchel Page. He came to Canada almost every year. And, uh, and I was in the Saskatchewan province. So, uh, no, Satchel Page never quit. And you can see by 1965, when he comes and he's pitching for the A's, he hadn't been sitting down. He was actually pitching at pitching games when he came and pitched that three inning for the A's. He was, he, you know, he was, he was already performing and had never stopped. So uh, he would, he could act. He knew that he could get the Boston Red Sox out. <laughs> so I just put it that way because he'd been getting people out. And, and you know, as as I cross the nation, I run into people who are in their seventies. Matter of fact, there was a gentleman I went to his birthday party. He was the first ever, actually the only blackhead baseball coach in the in the in the you know the Big Eight, the Big Ten, Big Twelve, whatever you want to call them, for Kansas State. And uh, he called Paige in 1963, and he's about 70 years old. So it's a lot of people out here with these stories. There's still people who actually called Paige still around, quite a few of them on top of it. That's amazing. Yep. Let's talk about another big star, the offensive star of the Negro League, is Josh Gibson, a fantastic hitter but a troubled individual as well. Tell me about his power has become like Paul Bunyan-esque, it's become mythical, but was the power, how real was that power when he was playing? It, it, it was, it was real. He could, matter of fact, uh, I remember talking to Willie, uh, Willie Wales and, uh, Willie Wales said that uh, he was playing shortstop and Josh Barr hit a ball so hard past him, went like a shot. He said, he even tried to field. He just jumped out the way. So this guy's not killing me. So, <laughs> but he was, he was a tremendous line drive hitter, but he hit for power. And the interesting thing was, he started doing this in, at the age of 20. So in 1931, he's with the Homestead Grays, that really great team that I was talking about. And, uh, you know, legend says that he hit 70 home runs that year, but doing a historical uh, analysis on it, he only hit 40. But he's 20 years old, and he hit 40 home runs. And that was a team that had Oscar Charleston. He had more home runs than Oscar Charleston. So, so that lets you know that he had something going for him. And uh, but Josh Gibson was just a tremendous hitter. Uh, I was interviewing uh, one time talking to Jesse Williams, who played shortstop for the uh, Kansas City Monarchs in the uh, 1940s. And Jesse said he went over to the dugout and he saw a bat in the Homestead Grays bat rack that was all nailed up and uh, had tape on it and things like that. And he asked, he said, Josh, is this your old broken bat? And Josh says, I don't break bats. He said, I wear them out. So this was a <laughs> this was. This was Josh Gibson and uh, a great player. Now the thing is, Josh Gibson got sick and when he, died he got a young sick. Man. That's when, yeah, and that's when he ran into. He had health issues uh, with his brain, and um, so uh, he, they said he should have gotten surgery, but he didn't. And uh, and I remember talking to Vic Harris's wife, and they said at one time uh, they would put him in into a mental hospital and go get him on the weekend to play baseball, Vic Harris. This is wife told me this. They would go get him on the weekend to come play a baseball game and then take him back to the hospital. Was he still productive while this was going on? Of course. This guy could play. This guy could flat out play. And, uh, and, these, and like, these are stories that I heard that you probably won't read these in books, but these are stories that are true. And uh, they came from the players and the players' wives. Uh, but, uh, you yeah, know, Josh Gibson, and, and you, I'm sure, you know, People have written about it. Uh, I think um, some people have even romanticized it. I think uh, when um, Peterson did his book on Only the Ball is White, he said Josh died of a broken heart. No, it, it wasn't his heart that killed him. It was something in his head. That's sad. It's sad that he died so young. It's sad that he never got a chance to play in the major leagues. It's one of the great what-could-have-been stories in all of baseball. And I, I, I tell people this, and uh, I actually went to this Negro League seminar that was hosted here in New Jersey. I think uh, Ray Dandridge's grandson was there. He was talking about how he was going to the Hall mm -hmm. of Fame. There was an old-timer there. He had to be in his 90s. He was talking about how he used to see those guys play in, Nor in Newark way back in the day and in Jersey City even before that. But um, uh -huh. they... They were sort of talking about the the presenter was talking about how Gibson was a what if what if he played and I think that question is what if he played in the majors and I think that question is there 
but one of the guys, one of the old timers stood up and he was just like, well, he did play professionally and we know he was great. He just didn't get a chance to play because of the way society was at that time. But we shouldn't discount him just because he never got an opportunity to play in the major leagues. Matter of fact, you can't discount any black player because it had nothing to do with them. It was a society that they were born in. And, you know, it's a shame that uh, people didn't get to see them in the big league parks playing against those white players on a regular basis. But you could see them playing against white players all over the country. And so many people, I would probably, it's probably more variety of people saw the Homestead Grays than maybe the New York Yankees at one time. Because they're going to play in 1931, and, and, and I'm going to keep going back to 31 because I did just an exhaustive research on it. Uh, they played about 180 games. And I think, I think I added up, they had like maybe 40 different opponents. And I forget how many cities it was. But they're going to be playing in a lot of places. And uh, they were, you know, they came out to Kansas City that year. You know, Kansas City, you know, Major League Baseball didn't get past St. Louis. So, you know, they're in different places. They even went to Canada uh, with that team up around Niagara Falls area. So uh, this is a, it's a great history, but the, the thing is you can't limit these men because, you know, you want to say maybe on day in and day out they didn't face the greatest pitchers, you know. But if you look in the baseball encyclopedia and you look at the records of some of those play- pitchers, I would be willing to say day in and day out, the major leagues didn't face some of the greatest pitchers. Well, neither did, right? So neither the players, neither Babe Ruth or Josh Gibson faced the best level of competition. And that's one of the bummers about all of it. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that we we still, you know, here in 2018, think that like the players from the early 1900s are, are the best ever and they're better than the modern contemporaries. We don't do that in any other sport. We do that in mm-hmm. baseball. But why are we so willing to do that with Ruth, but not... Page or Gibson, you know, I, I think that there's a bit of a contrast there. Yeah, and I, I'm going to have to agree with you on that. Uh, you, you, you pretty much summed, summed, summed it up about the way I would sum it up, summarize it, because uh, I, 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 you know, it's nothing I can add to what you just said. Some sad news: the recently the Buck O'Neill Research Facility was vandalized. There's been some vandalization going on with some Negro League sites, I believe. A, a Satchel Page is was a grave marker was vandalized as well. But can you tell me about the significance between the Buck O'Neill research facility that was vandalized? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it was actually Satchel Page's uh, former home was burned. Former. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So it was his home. And, and uh, matter of fact, if somebody's interested, they can go online and they can see that. And it's been a tough year in Kansas city. And in addition to the, like whoever went in, I was talking about Kendrick, the president of the museum. He said, whoever went in and, vandalized the, uh, and now this is the YMCA, which was also the place where they had the first, uh, organized the first Negro National League. So it's the Buccaneer Center, but it's actually a historic place uh, for the organizing of the league as well. So it's a dual purpose. But he said whoever did that knew what they were doing. They knew right where the pipes were that led to the water. And they, you know, it's, uh, so they, whoever it was, Hopefully we'll find them because they had an, it was an inside job. And that's the word that I'm getting. I haven't heard anything about Page's house. Uh, but I will tell you, when I say it's been a tough year for Kansas City, um, uh, we also had a, a famous statue that stood in front of a, uh, a, a traditional uh, HBCU, which was a Western University here in uh, Quindaro, Kansas. Uh, and, uh, and the statue of John Brown, uh, people will, will swatch stickers on it and things like that earlier in the year. So that's just, you know, it's been, a, it's been a kind of tough, tough around Kansas City. Nobody's been called on any of these things. So, um, you know, it's, these are tough times in a way. Yeah, the old Y, which is which was renamed the Buck O'Neill Research Facility. That's where that's where uh, Foster got everyone together and and got the idea for the Negro Leagues and got the owners there and uh, a truly significant site to see it damaged and and obviously damaged on purpose is is a terrible way to go. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned Bob Kendrick, the the president of the Negro League Hall of Fame and museum. Was he a part of the two thousand six committee? the Hall of Fame committee to try and no. he wasn't a part of it either. That's good. That's not great. No, he was he was not he was not either. He was not either. Uh Ray Doswell, Dr. Doswell at the Negro League Museum was a part of the committee. 
Okay, that's good. He was on. I mean, but but he he. I'm sure he voted for Buck O'Neill, even though Buck O'Neill didn't get in. I, I would be very surprised if Ray didn't vote for Buck. But um, but uh, yeah, he was a part of it. You are wrapping up a 200 city tour where you've been going around talking about the history of Negro League baseball and black baseball and trying to help with race relations with that. Can you tell me a little bit about the tour itself and how it's been going? Yeah, you know, it's been fabulous. You know, I started off uh, in 2013. I came up with the concept and I just felt like race relations were, you know, not doing well in America. So originally it started off as a 90 city tour. And, and in 2014, it was going to be like 90 years since the first Negro League World Series. And uh, so I'm going to be talking about the Monarchs. So I picked 90 cities. And so I did 90 cities. And then I went to Canada. And, and I think at that particular time, I covered 10 states driving like the Negro Leagues. Haven't been on a plane one time. And uh, so I'm driving all these places. I'm gone most weekends. A lot of times on a weekend, I'll do a double header, two cities and, you know, like Negro Leaguers. I'll do two cities. And so I might do one at 1030 and then, uh, I, you know, I, I drive to the next one 70 miles away to another presentation. It's been fabulous. The people I've met and um, it truly has made a difference on race relations, even though it gets no national publicity because people who come to the event, they're curious. And, and in some of these small towns, you know, they haven't had a black guy come there to speak on anything probably other than a preacher, maybe, maybe who knows how many years. <laughs> and uh, I've been in a lot of towns as small as McCracken, Kansas, which had a population of about 300 people, you know, so, you know, and, and I try to stay around those places because uh, with this tour, these are places that people don't go to tell the story. And in many places, they don't know that the monarchs actually played there or Satchel Page or, you know, that they were there until I get there to tell these stories. And uh, so I met some people. Uh, I will tell you this. Uh, one person I met was a, a gentleman by the name of Dick Cromie. And I met Dick Cromie, uh, when I met him, he was in Marysville, Kansas. He came to hear me speak. He was 98 years old, played uh, for the town team in Brennan, and uh, they played the Mon Monarchs at the Marshall County Fair in 1939, and uh, he was the catcher on the team. And so the next year, I went to Blue Rapids, Kansas, and Dick Homie, now who's uh, 99, drives about 50 miles over to hear me speak, him and his wife. And then I, I, I didn't go that area in uh, the next year when he turned 100. And, but I did send him a, a birthday call for his 100th birthday, and uh, he died um, when he was 101 years old. And it's the oldest, uh, actually, non-white player that I ever met who played against the Monarchs. And I have a picture of him standing with the Monarchs team on top of it. So, uh, you know, he can prove he was there. He's in the game, and it, and it, was just, it was just great. But if I don't take this tour, I don't meet him. And I probably have 50 stories of people I've met like interesting maybe not all as interesting as dick Cromie, but some pretty interesting people so uh i'm wrapping up uh, i think uh I, i'm making some big jumps in the end i'll be in uh, cheyenne wyoming in august uh september i'll be in madison uh, wisconsin and uh i'm trying to get to the twin cities and i might go back down south i did i did mississippi but i haven't been to louisiana which is a really good place and i'd like to go to texas too so if anybody out there wants to Hear, hear a great presentation, routinely get standing ovations, please give me a call. <laughs> you, can, you can find me on Twitter. I think you gave the address early. But it's been fantastic. But it's gave me a new appreciation and understanding of what the Negro Leaguers went through. And can I add one more thing to that? Sure. Yeah, you know, um, back in the 30s, when you know, in the 20s, when the Negro League players were going into these small towns, you know, it was, it was, you know, it could be kind of dangerous. And what's amazing to me is that we've come all these years, and now when I go to small towns, I have to be aware myself, even after all these years. And you would think that that would have gone away, but it's still alive and well. And it's probably, um, you know, uh, I shouldn't have to worry about that, but I, but I have to because there are people out there. Who, you know, who, you know, they're stuck in the past and, uh, you know, but I'm doing my best to move them forward. And, and I met a lot of good people who are willing to help me. Lastly, before I let you go, 
give me your favorite Negro League story, whether it be about an individual, a game, anything, your favorite Negro League story. Mm, man, boy, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I got, you know, I'll tell you what, here's my favorite Negro League story. One of them involves myself. Uh, you know, uh, gr- growing up, I had heard about Satchel Page, how great a person and pitcher he was and that kind of thing. And I, and my family, we moved from Kansas City, Kansas. So we moved to Kansas City, Missouri, to 27th Street, right? Satchel Page's house was in walking distance from where I lived, right? Matter of fact, I, I used to cut Frank Duncan's uh, hedges. So I knew where Frank Duncan lived. And so anyway, I'm going to go over and uh, meet Satchel Page. And so I would drive past the house, and, you know, I'd be in my car. I was 19, 18, 17, just learn how to drive. And I see him on the front porch, man. It was so intimidating because, you know, I just held this guy in such high esteem. And so, you know, uh, I, I would see him, and I would just keep him going. You know, in the end, he would be sitting out front. He had emphysema in the end, so he'd be out there, you know, with the oxygen tank and that kind of thing. And so – and so finally, I got the nerve. I said, today I'm going to meet Satchel Page. So I go over there, and I have all my nerve up. I go up to the door, I knock on the door. I said, I'd like to uh, meet Mr. Page. And they said, he's out of town. And, you know, I never went back, and I <laughs> I never got a chance to meet Mr. Page. But you are you ready for this one? If you look to where Satchel Page is buried, He's buried in the cemetery. Buck O'Neill's buried in that same cemetery. My father's buried there, too. Uh, Johnny Taylor, uh, the R&B singer, he's buried there, too. But if you go and look at Satchel Page's monument, on the back, it has a poetic saying, and I wrote that on the back of his monument. You've been listening to Phil S. Dixon. Phil is a baseball historian and researcher. He's the author of several books, including Wilbur Bullet Rogan and the Kansas City Monarchs. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Negro League Man. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time, the extended time, to join the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation, and maybe we can do it again when the book comes out on DCD. 